you would this morning, let's go to the book of Jude. Book of Jude, if you'll just, thank you, if you'll just go to the back of your Bible, go to Revelation and hang a left. The book of Jude, we, we spent almost two years in the book of Mark and just finished that out last week and uh, as I mentioned, we would start Jude today and uh, probably spend, I'm thinking, five, six weeks here, uh, as it is only 25 verses, and uh, then we'll go on to something else. But I think Jude is really relevant for where we're at today, and I mean the Bible is relevant at all times, uh, but I think certainly some places more than others where we are in 2022, and Jude is certainly one of those books. And uh, as I was studying for this and really going through this when I got to typing out the outline, it started with a pretty long introduction and three points, and I was like, wow, that's getting really long. And I was like, okay, I do an introduction and two points, and I was like, wow, that's really long. So it's, it's only going to be an introduction and one point today. So um, everybody say thank you, Brother Brandon. <laughs> but uh, somebody once said there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation, so... But uh, I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to spend a pretty good bit of time on the introduction this morning. I, re- I really usually do that when I start a new book because I think it's so important to understand the background, what's going on, what's being said, who's writing, who are they writing to, why are they writing, and understand when, when you read the Bible, it really helps you to better understand it. Uh, if you understand there's really two main parts that you have to look for. They're not the only two, but they're the main two. And that is audience and application. Who is the initial audience? Who is being written to? Why, why is this being written? How would they have understood this? You have to understand the audience, and then we can make application. If we just do application, we're going to miss some things. And if we just pay attention to the audience, we won't be able to apply it to where we are. And so those are two important things. And I want to give you the audience at first this morning. Of course, the author of the book is Jude. He actually says it, unlike the Gospel of Mark. We had to go to other historical sources to know that. Uh, but what's interesting is Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, regardless of what the Catholic Church says, uh, Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born, of course, uh, Jesus was born uh, when Mary was still a virgin. He was virgin born. But after Joseph and Mary uh, got married, uh, they had other children, and Jude was one of those children. And uh, he was the leader in the church at Jerusalem. And although we don't know the specific audience that he was writing to, it seems that he was writing to other Jewish Christians, possibly in Jerusalem. He references a lot of Jewish history here. And it really wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense for him to do that to a Gentile audience. Um, as far as the dating of this letter, uh, it was most likely written between about 65 and 80 A.D., which is about uh, 30 to 45 years after the ascension of Christ. Uh, the theme of Jude is contending for the faith, fighting for the faith. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, contending for the faith. Um, but... Uh, th- this means that, you know, this word contend, it means to struggle or to fight for the faith. And as we're going to see in verse 3, which is the theme verse, he didn't say fighting for a faith or one of many faiths. He said the faith. He also said 
that we're fighting for the faith once delivered to the saints. Uh, that speaks of a closed canon of Scripture. Uh, he, he Once and for all, he made the point that we have the Word of God. And this would have made sense because uh, Jude was one of the last books to be written in the New Testament. Uh, quite possibly only uh, the later books of John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation might only be the only books that were after this, but all of the Gospels and all of Paul's writings to the church uh, have been completed at this time. And so uh, they already had some, some of these letters circulating uh, among the churches. Uh, now initially, as we'll see, Jude was writing to discuss the common salvation that we share as believers, but apparently Jude heard that false teachers had come in among his brethren and he wanted to expose them. Uh, Jude is what is known as a, polem- a polemical response. Uh, you've heard of apologetics. Apologetics, is a, it, it comes from the Greek word apologia, and it means to, to give an answer. And apologetics has to do with a response to heresy outside of the church. A polemic response has to do with heresy within the church. And so he is writing, Jude is writing to these Christians at whatever church, wherever they may be, about the false teachers that have come in to their circles. And what I find interesting is Jude didn't write directly to those pastors. Now, he could have, and I don't think there would have been anything wrong with that. But he went around them and spoke directly to the true believers that were now under these false teachers. It was a polemic response uh, to these false teachers. He exposed them, and we have to do that. I know... Uh, that there's certain things that we just like talking about more than others, don't we? I mean, we like talking about heaven. It's easy to preach about heaven. Uh, we like to talk about the blessings that come with salvation. We like to talk about uh, the provision of God and, and the love of God. And all these things are wonderful. The grace of God. Thank God for the grace of God. Uh, but we're called to contend for the faith. Listen, by this letter, not only is Jude picking a fight, but he's rallying the troops. We must contend for the faith as Christians. We're commanded to do so. Um, <clears throat> and, and as I said, and I want to focus on this again, we can certainly find application for today because there are false teachers everywhere pretending to be Christian preachers and teachers. We're going to look at this uh, more in the coming weeks. But do you realize the Apostle Paul uh, warned the church at Corinth that the ministers of Satan, his ministers, appear as angels of light. Did you know that Satan has his own ministers? They're not walking around with horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail. They appear as angels of light. They appear as the real thing and the true thing, but they're straight out of hell and their goal is to take as many people as they can with them. And so we have to be aware of these things. Uh, We can find application, but we must remember that Jude is speaking to this specific audience that he was writing to in his day. And this is amazing considering that this is, as I mentioned, only 30 to 45 years removed from the ascension of Christ and false teachers and false teaching are already making their way into the church. Well, Satan doesn't wait too long, does he? And... uh, What we need to focus on, what I want you to know historically about Jude's day and what specifically sparked this particular letter is what is known as Gnosticism. Uh, 
that was the first real hurdle that the church faced as far as doctrine goes and false teaching uh, and heresy. Now, Gnosticism, the word means knowledge or to know. And even though these Gnostics claim to be Christians, uh, they actually believe that God would give them special hidden revelation and that salvation came through this hidden knowledge of God and not through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Um, And by the way, uh, Gnosticism is still alive and well in the world today. It's alive and well in the church today. And I would say this is the danger of the whole God told me mentality. I would be very, very careful about that. Oh, God told me. Listen, God told me is no substitute for God said. And we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble with that mentality. Now listen, I I definitely believe that God can guide us. He can give us inclinations and leading through prayer and reliance on the Holy Spirit. But I will say this. If God tells you something that goes against His Word, it wasn't God that told you that. I was, uh, I was actually watching a debate that just came out this week between some Mormons and some Christians. It was like a two-on-two thing. And the, the subject of the debate is what is your final authority? Of course, the Christians coming from a biblical worldview said that Scripture is our absolute final sole authority for faith and practice. And the Mormons... Uh, they said, I mean, it's still kind of hard to understand because it's just, it's just so out there. But basically, their position was that God gives us several tools to be able to understand how He speaks to us. He can speak to us by His Spirit. He can speak to us in visions. He can speak to us through uh, the Bible or the Book of Mormon. Um, he, can get, he can speak to us. He gives us reason and rationale. And, but the thing about it is, how do you vet that? You can't possibly vet that. And I thought one of the greatest parts in the debate, evidently the Christian debaters actually knew these guys on a personal level, and apparently the Mormon debaters, they couldn't even agree amongst themselves whether or not God was eternal or whether He was created because God told this one that He was eternal and God had told this other one that He was created. That's a pretty big difference there. Pretty big difference. So how is it that God can tell you one thing and tell somebody else, you know, God speaks to Hindus and says Hinduism is true. God speaks to Mormons and tell them, tells them that Joseph Smith was a true prophet and the Book of Mormon is true. And, and so if God told you this and God told you that, it's not God. It's a God that's been created in the imagination of all these different people. And here's a great distinction to make. If I want to find out about the God of the Bible... I go to the revelation that He has given us. But if I wanted to know about their God, I would have to go to each of them individually with a notepad and take notes about what their God is like. And they're all going to be different. Why? Because their God imagined in their mind, which actually makes them their own God. Instead of submitting to the revelation that God has already given about Himself, this is what the Gnostics did. They, they pretended to be Christians but they operated off this supposed uh, private revelation and knowledge that God had given them. And the Gnostics at first, the reason this was so dangerous in the early church is because initially they gained a lot of acceptance and found a lot of traction among the Christian church. And there's really two reasons for this. And this is exactly how Satan works. The first reason 
that the Gnostics found traction is because they copied the model of the apostles. Now, think about this. We actually talked about this last week at the end of Mark and how the book of Acts was a transitional book. They didn't have any New Testament to read. So after the ascension of Christ, how does the apostles prove that they're of God, that Christ is really risen from the dead, and that their message is true? Well, it was through signs and wonders. It was through powers. And, and the apostles, they did have special revelation from God because they didn't have a book to go by at that time, certainly not the New Testament anyway. And so uh, it would be understandable how another group of people could also claim to have that special knowledge of God and whatever they said was from God. That's why they found so much traction. You see, Satan has a copycat. He has a false imitation for everything that God does. And there was no exception here. The second reason that they found so much traction is not only did these Gnostics claim to have this special revelation from God, but they wrote a lot too. They wrote books of the Bible, and many, on many occasions they lied about who wrote these books. They would claim to be Thomas, like the Gospel of Thomas, or uh, you know, different books uh, uh, that weren't actually written by those men. Now, uh, the church was able to snuff them out fairly quickly because they caught on to what was going on like Jude did. And what they did is they developed a system in order to determine uh, which books were inspired Scripture. And I, we mentioned these not long ago in our Knowing God study, but I want to give this... This is really important to know this. In fact, I just talked about this this very week. I, I talked with a young man who was asking me. He said, well, you know, how can you know that the books of the Bible are actually from God? Because they were... You know, they were selected by men and some books were left out and all this. And here's what I told him is what I'm going to tell you is the early church recognized that they needed to distinguish which books were inspired and which ones weren't. Because understand this, in that day, when people wanted to communicate long distances, they wrote. And there's a lot of things that even the apostles wrote in their own time, whether it was personal correspondence or whatever else, that was not necessarily inspired scripture. So even among writings of the apostles, how do we know what's inspired? Well, the early church came up with a fourfold test to know this. It's really important. The first test was apostolic authorship. Were these New Testament books written by an apostle or a close associate? Most of them are written directly from the, the apostles, but then you have situations like the book of Mark. Mark was not one of the original apostles, but he was a very close associate of Peter. In fact, he was, P he was Peter's copyist, so he would have a first-hand account from Peter everything that he wrote. And so uh, the Gnostic Gospels don't fit that description. The, the second test was antiquity. Were they old enough? Were they the right time? Were they written between around 40 A.D. and 100 A.D., uh, around the time of the death of the last apostle, which was John? Uh, the Gnostic Gospels were written you know, more in the 2nd century, so they were too late. The third test was accuracy, doctrinal accuracy. Do they line up with the books that fit these other tests, or are there blatant contradictions? The Gnostic Gospels were, were direct contradictions mainly because the Gnostics did not believe, among other things, they did not believe in the humanity of Christ. They did not believe that He came in human form because in the Gnostic mind... <clears throat> um, uh, material things are evil. Everything material is evil. Everything spiritual is good. And so there's no way that Jesus could have had a human body because he would have been evil. 
Now you can only imagine what this would do to doctrines like the virgin birth, uh, the sinless life of Christ. Uh, in fact, they believe that when Jesus was crucified, He didn't even feel pain. He didn't have a human body. He didn't suffer. And how can someone have a bodily resurrection if they didn't have a body? And so it was glaring the contradictions here. They didn't, uh, they didn't fit that test. The Gnostics didn't. The fourth test was were these letters and documents, were they accepted by the church widely? Were they widely distributed? Now, the Gnostic Gospels did fit this description for a short time, but they failed the other three, and so they, that's why they didn't make it into the closed canon of Scripture. So if somebody tries to tell you that men removed books that should have been in the Bible, you tell them that's not true and this is why. Uh, that's just something important to know. And by the way, it's, it's really... I know that when people say those things, you're dealing with people who have a, an evil heart of unbelief or maybe they're just repeating what they've heard. Uh, but wouldn't it be a really, really small God that couldn't preserve His Word, that couldn't give us the things that He wanted us to know? What a small God. How could you even trust a God? like How could you even know a God like that? You couldn't. But I've just told you the process by which He used to purify His Word. Um, and so... They were able to snuff the Gnostics out with this test. Um, <clears throat> and so even though uh, one time they might have been accepted by a good portion of the church, after they were exposed, it really, really kind of went away in, in that sense. Uh, but it's, as I said, it's very much alive today in the forms of Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, through the cults such as Mormonism, and uh, even through the charismatics uh, within Christian ranks. Absolutely. Uh, I've talked to charismatics before and I tried to share what the Bible said about certain things and they looked me in the face and says, I don't care what that book says, I know what I felt. I know what I experienced. <laughs> but it's just like I th that debate I was talking about, I thought it was such a great point the Christians made. They said, how can you vet your experience? How can you know your experience wasn't demonic? And they said, we don't know. I thought, wow, I'm glad I got better guidance than you do. <laughs> and so how would they even know? This is why we're to try the spirits. And this is why the book of Jude is so important because every generation must contend for the faith. Every generation must fight for the truth of the Word of God and the truth of the gospel. And if you think about it, the reason that we're saved today, if you are saved and you know the Lord, the reason is because at some point in history, or at all points during history, I should say, there's always been a group of people uh, down through the generations that fought for truth. The reason that we know truth is because somebody told us the truth, which means they were standing for truth. Thank God for them. Can you remember who had an influence on you coming to Christ and who shared the gospel with you? We don't need to let it in with us. But the question is, uh, what will it take to contend for the faith? This is my one point. I told you I had a pretty lengthy introduction, but we'll, we'll dive into this one point and we'll be through this morning. What will it take for us to uh, contend for the faith? Well, let's read our text this morning. Uh, Jude will read the first four verses. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, 
and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for salvation in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that every person in here uh, would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they're saved and that they know you and that they would just totally surrender their lives to you every day seeking your will for their life. Uh, Lord, I pray that in these days as we continue to grow darker as a society, that the church would just burn brighter, Lord, that we would be salt and light in these last days. I ask that you fill me, your Holy Spirit, into me as sin and self, uh, Lord, that you would just strengthen us this morning. If somebody's lost, you would save them. If they're hurting, God, if they're worried, I pray that you would encourage them today. Uh, Lord, be with those that are sick and couldn't be with us. And we ask that you just uh, be magnified this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. I want to preach on this thought this morning of contending for the faith. And we'll probably do this um, not only this morning, but also next week, part one and two. Uh, contending for the faith. And how do we, how do, we do that? I mean, the Lord is literally telling us here to fight for the truth and fight for the faith. And I'm not talking about uh, bashing somebody over the head or giving them a black eye. We don't have to be ugly. We don't have to be nasty. We certainly don't have to be physical. In fact, uh, that's not the way that we're supposed to operate. Uh, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God is what the book of James says. Now, if the wrath of man did work the righteousness of God, I imagine business might pick up a little bit. It certainly might be more fun at times, amen. But that's not the case. And so the, the one thing that I really want to talk about this morning, if you're going to contend for the faith, you have to be converted. Yourself, you have to be converted. There has to be a conversion experience. And let's really pull from these first two verses here. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, I'm going to stop right there and uh, say that you cannot do the work of the Spirit in the flesh. You can't do it. In fact, I would say that's probably one of the most frustrating things that anybody could do is to try to do the work of God in the flesh, the work of the Spirit in this sinful body and our own tiring efforts. Uh, unsaved people, they might can look spiritual. They can be trained to look spiritual, but they cannot be spiritual. The natural man receiveth uh, not the things of the Spirit of God. Their spiritual discern their foolishness unto him. He can't even understand it. Uh, let me ask this. Are you saved today? I mean, really. Have you ever been born again? Have you ever repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Has He changed your life? And does that uh, relationship play itself out every day in your life? Uh, not that you're perfect, but your desire is to serve Him and to spend time with Him in prayer and to tell others about Him. Is there any fruit in your life? Because if there's no fruit, chances are there's no root. And regardless of whether you may be uh, joined to church or were baptized or maybe said a prayer, whatever the case may be, how does that play itself out in your everyday life? I mean, is salvation to you something that you just go back in time and said, well, I did this back then. This is why I'm saved now. There's a problem with that. In fact, uh, as many of you know, I grew up in the Church of Christ. 
and they believe that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. Baptismal regeneration. No water baptism, no salvation. In fact, you had to be baptized into their church. And so if you talk to a church of Christ, in fact, when I, heard, when I first heard the gospel, and I, I was really convicted of my sin, and I realized I was lost, uh, I had somebody who could tell I was, I was struggling, I was battling with that, and, and they asked me if I'd ever been saved, if I knew the Lord, and my answer was, yes, I've been baptized. You see, I went back in my mind and said, I did this once upon a time, and that's why I'm, I'm okay today. But I'm going to be honest with you, I know a lot of Baptists who treat a prayer, a certain prayer, sometimes called the sinner's prayer, where they go back in time and said, well, you know, I prayed this prayer all this time ago and that's why I'm saved now. Listen, there's nothing wrong with a prayer. In fact, I would say that uh, you're not saved by a prayer, but I would say many times that prayer is the result of saving faith. You're asking God to save you. You're calling upon the Lord as Romans 10 tells us to do. But you're not saved by a prayer any more than you're saved by a water baptism. And my question is, have you ever been born again? Does the Spirit of God reside in your heart? Has your life been changed? That's very important. We're going to look at that. And so, have you ever been saved? You can't do it in the flesh. And here, it's very interesting as Jude describes himself. Listen, as the servant, which means slave. The word literally means slave here. The slave, the servant of Jesus Christ. Now think about the awkwardness of this statement. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He slept under the same roof as Jesus. He saw the things that he did growing up, heard him talk. I saw him working in the carpenter's shop, probably worked alongside him with his dad. And yet here he doesn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus. It would have been so easy just to throw in that familial relationship there. But he didn't do that. He said, I am the servant of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Christ is not a last name, it's a title. It literally means the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. Now, does anybody in here have siblings? You have brothers or sisters? Would you ever utter the words that I am a servant to my brother or my sister? I sure hope not. And if I see it, I'm going to be calling people on you. Uh, Because there's something wrong with that. Unless that brother or sister actually is the virgin-born child of God. The virgin-born Son of God, God incarnate. And by the way, what I find interesting about both James and Jude is if you look in the Gospels, there's times where it's very obvious they were embarrassed by Jesus. They were embarrassed by Him. They wanted Him to be quiet. He was just a total embarrassment to the family. had all these new doctrines that went against Jewish tradition. And so uh, what happened to change their mind? Well, you find out specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that they saw the resurrected Christ. And it changed everything. He was not just their half-brother. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the sovereign monarch of the universe. That's who they're serving. That's an amazing thought that only makes sense if He's really God incarnate. And so uh, we, we see this here. He, he, they had a real genuine 
born-again experience uh, through and in Christ Jesus. Uh, they serve Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you do the same? Um, <clears throat> now, some might say, well, I thought being a servant was a bad thing. Well, as we found, in our, found out in our Knowing God study, it depends on who your master is. If you're serving the King of kings and Lord of lords, it's an honorable thing. Who else better could you serve? I belong to the Savior. I belong to the Lord of glory. And so he was. He did, and he was excited about that. Uh, Jude is stating in no uncertain terms that he knows the Lord and he is making an appeal to others who know the Lord as well. He didn't ask the lost world for help on this. He asked the saved. And we see this uh, by these specific terms that he uses in these first two verses. That's going to be the remainder of our message, looking at these key terms that he used. Uh, He says in verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Now this word sanctified, it literally means to be set apart. And the idea is, I've often used the illustration of how soap and water separates dirt from our body. When we take a a shower, it separates uh, the dirt from our skin. And in the same way God separates us from this fallen world, and He separates us from the sin that we once craved. It does not mean that we will be perfect. It does not mean that we will ever be uh, perfectly sinless by God's perfect standard in this life. But it does mean that He makes a change in us and we'll be going a different direction. Now, I think this is important to point out. There's really three types of sanctification in in the Scripture. Uh, I've shared these before, but I'll hit it while I'm here. Uh, The first one is positional sanctification. And this takes place the moment that somebody is born again. The moment that somebody repents of their sins, they put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they are positionally sanctified forever. You are forever set apart. Uh, You're no longer a child of the devil. You're no longer uh, a slave to the course of this world. Uh, You are separated from that. You become a child of God positionally. And as I preached about a few weeks ago, that never changes for the child of God. We can make mistakes, we can mess up, we can do wrong, but our positional sanctification never changes. It never changes. So positionally, we're always sanctified. Uh, But then there's progressive sanctification. This is the one that we really need to focus on, and I believe this is the one that Jude is really focused in on as much as the other ones, if not more so. But it is the process, the lifelong process by which God takes us from what we were and makes us and molds us into what He wants us to be. He is uh, taking us from what we were. Aren't you glad that you're not what you were? Listen, I'm not always what I should be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. Uh, and it's, it's been a process. And it, listen, sanctification is not a fun process. For anybody who's ever... Uh, been in that sanctification process that God puts us through. It's not a fun process, but it is necessary. It's a lifelong process. Um, I think about Philippians 1.6 where God promises that if He begins a good work in us, salvation's a good work, if He begins a good work in us, He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I think about the old song, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. I remember uh, my pastor's father. He's a very godly man. Uh, he was a coal miner, lived 
pretty much poor his whole life, worked hard, provide for his family, good Christian man. And in the last stages of his life, the last days and even the last hours, he began to lose his mental facilities, began to lose his mind, as so many people do in, in those stages. And my pastor told me that in the last hours of his life, he lay there in his bed and he sang that old song, He's Still Working on Me to Make Me What I Ought to Be. And I thought, isn't that true? If you're living and breathing and have a heartbeat in this life, He's not through with you. He has got things that He wants to teach you and make you and mold you into His image. Listen, He is preparing us for heaven. He is purifying His bride. He is preparing us. But it's not a fun thing. And I saw a a great, great meme on the Internet the other day. It was so true, so true. Uh, it It was the old, a picture is worth a thousand words. It, um, on one side of the meme, it was two pictures side by side. One side, the picture, was a woman standing in this beautiful meadow full of flowers and the sunshine was beaming down. It's just like a picture-perfect day and, and she was just, you know, taking, soaking in the moment and the caption said, Salvation. <laughs> and then the next picture was somebody that was sitting down in a corner and they had a black eye and a busted lip and their clothes were torn and they had dirt all over them and it said sanctification. <laughs> but you know that's true. For anyone who has ever experienced that, that is exactly the sanctified life. It's not fun. Listen, we're going through a sanctification process right now in our own life and I know that it's God working on us. And, and no, you know, we don't like that in the moment, but we really should rejoice in it because we know that we're a child of God. And God our Father is working some things out. He is purifying us. And the only way to purify gold is by heat and pressure. Heat. And so we can rejoice in that. We may not like it, but we can celebrate the fact that God God loves us. God is our Father. And He loves us too much to let us stay the way that we are. And listen, I know this is hard to hear. And we don't like hearing things like this. But when I think about even, you know, my own children, I love them. And because of that, there's some things that I can't just let slide as a parent. You know, Laura, I love her to death. She's a daddy's girl. I mean, that girl loves me to death. If I sit down, listen, I've learned that if I just sit down, she'll come and she'll pop out the footrest of the recliner. She'll take my shoes off. She'll ask me if I want a drink or something to eat or a snack. And she'll bring me my blanket. And I love it because it just makes Leah sick. She'll, she'll look over at me and she'll just have this disgusted face and I'll just look over there and grin, you know. And, uh, but there's things in her life that as her dad, I have to point out, I have to discipline, I, I, have, to, uh, I have to deal with them. I love her too much to let her stay like that, uh, even though she has all these wonderful qualities. And, uh, you know, but God looks at us like that. There's some things that are just vile in our lives. There are some things that, that if He's going to make us into a mature believer, He's going to have to purify us and get those things out. We see the sanctification process. Uh, so we see positional sanctification, progressive sanctification. Uh, but then there's perfect sanctification that we look forward to when we get to heaven. Positional sanctification happens immediately at salvation. When we get to heaven... We'll be perfectly sanctified in a moment, never even tempted again. But between here and there is a lifelong process. It's not fun. And Jude is appealing to us, to those that have truly been saved and sanctified. 
And listen, if there's never been any sanctification, there's never been any salvation. Because uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man, if any person be in Christ, we're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if somebody claims to be saved and they're the exact same as they were 30 years ago, there's a big problem with that. The, the God of glory is not going to come in here and leave us the same way that He found us. It's just not. Um, there's going to be a change. And so we need to be ch- checking up on that. But then the second term that he uses here, and I'm moving on along, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to say I'm coming in for a landing, but we're circling the airport. There's turbulence. Um, but he, he doesn't just call for the sanctified. He says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. I love that word preserved. Um, it speaks of our security as believers. You see, you'll never be an effective witness for Christ. You'll never be able to effectively contend for the faith if, you don't, if you're not even sure about what you have. If you're not secure about what you have, how in the world are you going to try to make somebody secure in what you're not even secure in? We're secure in Jesus Christ. Listen, I could, I could do a whole series on the security of the believer in Christ. If you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation because it's not even your salvation, it's His. Uh, we're in the palm of His hand. He can save us to the uttermost. Listen, if you can lose your salvation by your works, then the flip side of that is you must gain your salvation by your works. And I, I cannot emphasize that enough. It is not a license to sin. I just proved that by the doctrine of sanctification. But understand, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to get me to heaven. Because in this flesh, we could never appease the perfect standard of God. And it's the epitome of arrogance to say that somebody can live as perfectly and as holy as the God of heaven. It's silly. They have way too high a view of themselves and a way too low view of God. But understand, you need to go to bed at night and know that because of Christ and His finished work on the cross, you are fireproof. You can never lose your salvation. You say, well, some days I don't feel saved. Listen, some days I don't feel it. So, some days uh, are harder than others. <clears throat> We're going to look at that in a minute. Uh, you know, sometimes when that alarm goes off and it's daylight stealings time and you lose an hour of sleep for reasons that still are unknown to me. Not feeling too saved. But it's not based on our feelings. It's based on the finished work of Christ. I I will use one verse. I I could use hundreds, but uh, I think about what Jesus said in John 10 verse 28. And I give unto them, that would be us, the saved, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, you're really going to have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to believe that you can lose your salvation and read this verse here. Because Jesus promises, I give unto them eternal life. How is it eternal life if it's not eternal? It was just temporary. Secondly, He makes the promise, they shall never perish. Now, if there was a chance that his children, his bride, his sheep, as we find in John 10, if it was possible for us to perish, how can he make the promise, they shall never perish? You make a liar out of Jesus. But then the third thing he says is no man is able to, or no one, any man is able to pluck them out of my hand. Well, some people might say, well, yes, but we can... 
you know, we can take ourselves out of His hand. No, 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 you, you misunderstood it. It's not us holding on to Him by our power. It's Him holding on to us, and we don't even have the power to break that. And if somebody who claims to be saved totally apostatized and they abandoned the faith, guess what? They never had it to begin with. They were professors, but they were not possessors. They never had Christ. Uh, in fact, uh, we find in uh, uh, the last epistles of John, he said they went out from us because they were not of us. And if they had been of us, they wouldn't have left. <laughs> and so we're preserved in Jesus Christ. I love what Spurgeon said here. He said, I could never either believe or preach a gospel which saves me today and rejects me tomorrow a gospel which puts me in Christ's family one hour and makes me a child of the devil the next, a gospel which first justifies and then condemns me, a gospel which pardons me and afterwards casts me down to hell. Such a gospel is abhorrent to reason itself. Much more, it is contrary to the mind of God in whom we delight to serve. I love the way he put that. So we need to be secure if we're going to contend for the faith. But then another term we need to look at is the word called. Uh, he said, and called. Now, the word called, I love this word. It's a great Bible word. If you want a great study of how God saves a person, uh, do a word study on the word called and calling or called out, any, anything along those lines. And uh, one characteristic that all Christians have in common is that we have been called by God. In fact, the word church means uh, the called out assembly, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. Uh, if you think about the father of the faith as he often is called, Abraham, he was called out by God the Father from the land of Ur to go to a place in which he told him, in which he sent him. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight through 30, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. That's salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Uh, Hebrews 3.1, um, the writer of Hebrews says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, I love the way he words this. In reference to Christ, he said that He saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Listen, being a Christian isn't about being a good person or following a set of rules. It's about being born again, being a partaker of this spiritual nature through this spiritual birth. Uh, in my own salvation experience, and you know, my experience is not uh, gospel, it's not the ultimate standard by which you need to measure your salvation. But listen, I remember, as a 14-year-old boy, I remember a friend from school invited me to church and I heard the gospel for the first time in my life and I was sick, I was miserable. I thought that preacher knew every sin I had ever committed, and I had never met that man in, in my life. Uh, the, it wasn't the preacher. It was the one that was preaching through the preacher. 
It was the one that was calling me out of my sin, out of where I was. I mean, I thought the ground was going to swallow me up and I was going to go to hell. I mean, I, I just knew I wasn't right. I knew my baptism wasn't good enough. Everything that I had done at that point wasn't good enough. And I remember leaving that place and thinking that I would never come back, but I found that conviction did not leave me. That calling did not leave me. I was miserable. I was sick. I couldn't hardly eat. I couldn't hardly sleep. I'm, you know, I'm a 14-year-old kid. Who thinks about that kind of stuff? at that age. And, and I remember, I've shared the story before, but I, I remember that week. It was the week of the 4th of July. And we were going to Mississippi to uh, have a family get-together. And I remember sitting in the back of the car just being miserable, and I was thinking, I even prayed. I said, God, don't, don't let this car have a wreck. Don't I'm not ready. I, I want to give you my life. I want to be saved. I believe God saved me right then, but I thought you had to be in church. You know, I, I, I didn't even know. But it's so amazing. Even, even when I went back uh, recently to, uh, to Alabama, Mississippi there for my uh, grandmother's funeral, we drove many of those same back roads that we drove that day to go to family reunion. And I still remember, I remember the houses that we passed, the, the trees, the roads. And I still, every time I drive those Back roads of Steens, Mississippi, I think about how I felt as a 14-year-old boy and how miserable I was. And, and I also remember the peace that came when I said, Lord, I, I surrender. I just want to be your child. Whatever that means, wherever that takes me, I want to be yours. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. Isn't it amazing? That's been 23 years ago, and I remember exactly how I felt. I wonder if you remember when God, through His Word and by His Spirit, revealed to you that you were a sinner on your way to hell and that you needed to repent and trust in a Savior who's much bigger and better and higher than you. I wonder if you remember that. Uh, two more things and I'm done quickly. He uses the term mercy here. Uh, mercy unto you, verse 2. And mercy simply means that God does not give us what we deserve. And I'm thankful for that today. He didn't give us what we deserved. Then there's peace quickly. Uh, peace, there are two types of peace mentioned in the New Testament. There's peace with God. Uh, <clears throat> therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. And so if you're saved, you're no longer a fugitive on the run from God's justice. You're saved today. You're, you're, you've been made right with God. You're not running from God anymore. You have peace with God. And that peace never changes. We never lose the peace with God. But then there's the peace of God. We find that in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful or be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now let me say this. As a Christian, you never lose peace with God. You never stop being right with God. But you won't always have the peace of God. And, and that's the biggest struggle even in my life right now is the peace of God. Uh, I struggle with that every day. I, I try to, I try to uh, seek God and get that. It's possible to have peace with God and not enjoy the peace of God. But it speaks of salvation, the peace with God. Um, and then he goes on to say... Um, and love be multiplied, verse 2. This love is agape. There's different uses of the word love in the Greek, but agape is the strongest sacrificial kind of love there is. We're commanded to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. 
And if we don't love, it's because we don't know God. We can't love like God unless we know the God of love. I would encourage you to go back and read 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, where he tells us that if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God that we don't see? If we don't love the church that we can see, how can we love God that we can't see? And so, if we don't have those things, the question we need to ask is, have we been born again? Do you remember when God saved you? Do you remember when you repented and trusted Jesus to save you from your sin? I would encourage you to surrender your life to Him today. If you have any questions after the service, please, let's talk. I'll, I'll take you aside and we'll talk and pray and go through the Scriptures. Do you know God today? And if you do, are you contending for the faith every day of your life? With your co-workers, with your family, with your friends. You don't have to have a bad spirit about it, but are you speaking truth in the face of lies? Are you being light in the face of darkness? We're commanded to contend for the faith and Jude is pleading with the saved within the church to step forward and contend for the faith. If you don't do it, who will?